Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Really quickly before I jump into Isaiah 53 this morning, uh, I want to continue to tie together what we've been doing for the last few months and what we'll be doing for the next few months, which is looking for Jesus in the Bible. And really, we're spending about 40 weeks on where Jesus is in the Bible. It would take decades to look at every passage where Jesus is found in Scripture because, of course, the purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to us and to reveal Jesus to us. And so, you know, we're, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg, but one of the things that I hope that we do through this study is teach you how to read the Bible and pick up some of the Christ-centered uh, practices that we do as we study the Bible, like where we can find Jesus in, Mos- in the writings of Moses or in the prophets. Or It gets a little easier in the New Testament because they are te- intentionally and knowingly writing about Jesus, but... Uh, we spent the last three months talking about Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So I want to talk about what it is to foreshadow something. If you watch movies or TV shows or read books, you are aware of foreshadowing. Any good writer or director of a movie or of a TV show uh, will foreshadow certain events. And you don't know that they're foreshadowing it when you're going through the story, right? I mean, if you watch... Star Wars, or The Matrix, or Lord of the Rings, or the Marvel movies, or any of these like big franchises of multiple movies that arc over a series, or this cinem- cinematic classics, Ninja Turtles 1, 2, and 3, you'll see that there's foreshadowing taking place. Okay, now I can tell that you're all familiar with Ninja Turtles 1, 2, and 3, So I'll use that as my illustration. At the end of the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, I was going to use something more classy like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, but I can tell you guys are more of a Ninja Turtles crowd here. At the end of the first Ninja Turtles movie, when the Ninja Turtles have defeated the bad guy, Shredder, the very last scene that you see from the movie, Shredder has fallen into a, this is very classy, like high cinema here, Shredder falls into a, trash truck and the trash truck crushes him but the last scene you see in the movie is you see his hand reach out of the back of the truck and you see he's still alive and then boom the movie ends that whole thing is foreshadowing and setting them up for a sequel because they got to make more money right but it's foreshadowing the story because you see something, it doesn't tell the whole story, but it sets you up for further development in the story. This happens in good books, it happens in good movies. Uh, there's just this intentional step by the author or the writer or the director or the creator to prepare you for the story to progress. Well, God is the ultimate creator, God is the ultimate director, God is the ultimate author, and God knows where we're going with this, and so he takes great pains throughout the Old Testament to drop little hints where he foreshadows Jesus and what Jesus is going to accomplish. So as we've prepared just these 12 weeks of Jesus foreshadowed, 
We've kind of broken uh, this down into three kind of categories of how God foreshadows Jesus in the Old Testament. And those three categories we've looked at are types, Christophanies, and prophecies. A type is a symbolic representation that foreshadows Jesus. So, for instance, a few weeks ago when I preached on the bronze serpent from the uh, book of Numbers, we would call that, the theological term for that would be a type, T-Y-P-E, type. It is a foreshadowing, it's just an image or a symbol that represents Jesus. It's not necessarily a prophecy, it's not necessarily Jesus showing up in bodily form. When John Eric uh, preached about the prophet, priest, and king, those are all types or typological (coughs) representations of Jesus that foreshadow him. In addition to types, there are uh, Christophanies. A Christophany is where Jesus appears in the Old Testament. When we looked at Jesus, the Son of Man, or Jesus, uh, the Angel of the Lord, those are Christophanies. It's Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. And then starting today, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at prophecies. Prophecy might actually be the most familiar of these three categories. And we'll spend really a lot of this month looking at the prophetic writings of Isaiah. I'll be in Isaiah today. Pastor John Eric will be in Isaiah next week, even around Christmas or Christmas Eve. We'll be looking at Isaiah. Isaiah is not the only Old Testament prophet that foreshadows Jesus, but he, uh, he writes a lot of the big home run hitters. You know what I mean? And so we're going to be looking a lot at Isaiah for the remainder of the month. So... That's what foreshadowing is. Next, uh, at the end of December, beginning of January, we'll get to Jesus manifested through his teaching, his miracles, and uh, in, all of this is found in the Gospels, and we'll spend about 14 weeks in the Gospels. All right, any questions? No? All right. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into uh, how Jesus is foreshadowed through the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Jesus, we find you from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation in Scripture, but you also help us do that. Your Holy Spirit inspired the writers and your Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture for us to understand what we can and cannot apply to you and what does uh, teach us about who you are. I pray, Lord, that as we get into Isaiah 53 today, that we would learn about who you are and that in the context of that, we would even understand what our role is and what role we play in your redemptive mission uh, in the world. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So, I don't know what the last nine months have been like for you, but uh, for a lot of people, the last nine months have been this huge period of uncertainty. A lot of people are uncertain about their health, I don't know, uh, anyone here like sneeze in a store and think this is it, I had a good run, it's all over now. And everyone looks at you like you just screamed a cuss word, you know, and all you did was sneeze. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty around health, there's a lot of uncertainty around who we can trust and who's telling us the truth and who's trying to mislead us. Many of us have experienced uncertainty 
as it relates to even our families, maybe the health of our family, or if we're not able to see our families as much as we would like to, that can create a sense of unease. Maybe we're uncertain about our jobs. Many people, as you know, this is no surprise, many people have lost jobs or had reduced work as a result of this pandemic. That creates uncertainty as it relates to our finances. It creates, for many people, something called food insecurity, where they don't know where their next meal is going to come from or what it's going to be. Uh, I would never allow myself to fall in that situation. I always plan those months in advance. But it creates a lot of uncertainty as almost every aspect of life is influenced by the coronavirus and this pandemic. Now, as I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, it, it does seem like there is a light at the end of the tunnel, although I don't want to be naive about that, and I want to understand that that is not going to solve every single problem. But many people are looking forward to a vaccine that is going to rescue us and return life to normal, putting everything, uh, all of this trouble that we've experienced to an end. Many public health, health officials are really looking forward to this vaccine and putting their hope in it. Financial markets, the stock market goes up and down based on the news around vaccines and our ability to uh, distribute those. News uh, cycles are wrapped up in this, and of course they're making money off of the ratings that they can uh, drum up. School districts, their hope is in a vaccine. My daughter is in first grade. She experienced half of kindergarten and probably most of first grade, if not all of first grade, at home at our kitchen table. She is yet, she'll be in second grade before she has a normal year of school. Uh, you know, and many of your kids are in similar situations where they're doing school from home. And for many families, that creates uncertainty. Will we even go back to school where we went to school or how we went to school, or will things change? Restaurant workers and other businesses are waiting on news of a vaccine that will not only save their lives, but save their livelihoods. Not just keep me healthy, but keep me employed. There's a lot of hope hanging on this shot in the arm, right? Whatever your opinions are about a vaccine, and I'm not really here to talk about how effective it's going to be or whether you should or shouldn't take it, you should at least be able to understand the concept of putting your hope in something that is in the future. Hanging all of your hope, hanging all of your dreams, hanging your desires on this person or this thing that needs to happen. For many people, that hope is in, oh, I hope someday I find a spouse, I hope someday I find a husband or a wife, and so they put all of their hope in that, or they hope in a job. I hope someday I get this promotion, or I hope someday I get this house, or I hope someday to get this car, I hope someday you know, to, to do this thing, and if I do this thing or find this person, that will solve everything. And that is, of course, an unrealistic expectation unless it is attached to Jesus. Because only Jesus is the one that's able to meet all of your expectations. And I will say, after following Jesus for 25 years, sometimes he just blows up your expectations anyway. Because sometimes our expectations are uh, illegitimate and not informed by Scripture. We have expectations that Jesus is going to make us uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. And he's like, we'll just focus on wise uh, you're, you're still going to experience trial and tribulation. You're still going to experience difficult things. You're going to die someday, and I'm not promising you money is, I think, how Jesus would be paraphrased accurately. Now, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a time in Israel that was also full of uncertainty, and it was not the result of a virus. 
It was actually two enemy nations that were surrounding Israel, and either one of them could have swept in, and they both threatened to sweep in and take over Israel. The first was the nation of Assyria, and the second was the nation of Babylon. Well, eventually Babylon did take over, and the people of Israel, for, for a very long time, years actually, a generation or so, they just knew it was a possibility. And so they have the, the cloud hanging over their head of what happens when Babylon comes in. I mean, they're, they're more powerful than us, they're bigger than us, they're ruthless. It is, are they gonna tear apart my family? Are they gonna take my home? Are they gonna kill me or my loved ones? And finally the day came where Babylon did just that thing. The nation of Babylon swept into Israel took over the land, took people away from their families, separated families, tore down some houses and homes, obviously put people out of work, picked people up and carried them away into another nation, exiling them and taking them into captivity. Uh, Babylon basically disrupted all of their life and their culture, stole their wealth and did more. And during this period of time, God's people were looking forward not to a vaccine, but to a person that was going to save them. They had this concept of this person who is going to be anointed, or that is to say, empowered by God, who is going to save them. An anointed savior, the Hebrew word for that is, we say it in English, Messiah. There's going to be this divinely empowered human person that was going to save them, and the term that they used in Hebrew is Mashiach, or Messiah is how we say it in English, but they had this concept of Messiah, and if you say it in Greek, it's Christ. So Messiah and Christ mean the same thing, anointed one, just one is Hebrew, one is Greek. So they had in their minds this, someday this deliverer, this savior, who's going to be empowered by God, is going to come and save us. This is 700 years before Jesus. And their expectation was that this savior is gonna come and he's gonna save us from these Babylonians. He's gonna give me my house back. He's gonna give me my family back. He's gonna get me my income back. And that was their expectation. Now you and I know, taking a step back, that Jesus actually does far more, the Messiah, Jesus does far more than get you a job and a family and a home. Jesus actually came to save them from sin which is a much bigger need. It may not feel like the most immediate need many times, but it is the bigger uh, need that we have is someone to save us from sin and protect us from the results of sin. So they looked forward to this Messiah, and during this time where Israel was going through all this uncertainty, there was a prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah heard from God about the coming Messiah, Isaiah actually had these incredible experiences. If you go back to Isaiah 6, where he has these visions of God on a throne, and he writes, through, uh, the, he, he writes a lot, and then his, his followers or his disciples gather up all his writings and put them together, and we have the book of Isaiah, okay? He probably didn't write it. He was the source of it. His followers wrote it down and collected it. He was the one that said it. Someone else probably wrote it for him. Isaiah prophesied many things about the coming Messiah, about his birth, his life, and his death, and we're going to look at some of those prophecies the rest of this month. At one point, Isaiah provides this really detailed description about the life of the Messiah, and that is found in Isaiah 53, and I want to read that, and that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the morning, as well as one passage in the New Testament from 2 Peter. So this is Isaiah 53. 
This is perhaps the most famous, most well-known prophecy about Jesus because it covers a lot of different aspects of Jesus' life. So let me read this. This is the prophecy of the suffering servant, we call this. This Messiah is going to come deliver the people. He's not going to ride in you know, with the military. He's going to suffer as he does this. So this is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. This is speaking of the Messiah, this coming Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So this is written or sourced roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, at the time it was written, they knew that it was foreshadowing a Messiah. They did not know as much about Jesus as we know about Jesus because we have the, result, the New Testament to benefit us, but this is written about the Messiah. There are five main ideas uh, that we learn about the Messiah here, the suffering servant. I just want to drive home. The suffering servant is how people understand this passage. He is not... Uh, a winner. He is not someone who succeeds in everything. He is someone who suffered and uh, went through difficulty. Now, obviously, we know Jesus on the other side of thing is the victor, the winner. But in his life on earth, this servant is going to suffer. So there are five things about his life that we're going to look at here that are going to help us understand this, this messianic savior that was going to come and save Israel. The first thing that we learn is this suffering servant will have humble beginnings. Like I said, uh, this suffering servant is not going to ride down from heaven on a cloud with an army of angels. He's going to have very humble beginnings. The first two verses make this clear. 
It says, he grew up before him. He is referring to the suffering servant. Him is referring to God the Father. The suffering servant grew up before God like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. A tender shoot, think about uh, like a plant that would spring up in the, in the springtime, come out of the ground, very tender, right? Vulnerable is the word that comes to mind, that this Messiah, this suffering servant is going to come up in vulnerability and in tenderness, not in aggression, not in your face, but in vulnerability. It says in verse two, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This suffering servant is not going to be someone that draws people to himself because of his charm or handsomeness or good looks. It says that he, he has no stately form or majesty. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a type A driven, you know, like Forbes GQ model. No stately form, no majesty, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. People were not drawn to this suffering servant because of his external appearance. That's different, for instance, from King David, who we know was handsome. The biblical word for handsome is ruddy. That's true. I'm just saying it is. I mean, I don't know. It's in the Bible, guys. So King David was handsome. People were drawn to David for many reasons, but one of them being he was good looking. But this suffering servant is not good looking. And we know, we know that this applies to Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus was probably just an average looking guy. People weren't following Jesus around because he had chiseled good looks and nice abs. The reason people were drawn to Jesus was because of his character. This verse right here, my wife told me one day that I was incredibly Christ-like, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you also have no stately form or majesty, and no appearance that anyone would be attracted to you. Before I met my wife, I was incomplete. Now I'm finished. All right, that was a good joke. So this suffering servant is going to have humble beginnings, he comes in lowly. He comes in vulnerable. This suffering servant also is not going to live an easy life. Look at verse three. This is how his life is, uh, is described. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. There are four ways that this suffering servant's life is described. Despised, forsaken, familiar with grief and sorrow, and not esteemed. To be despised is, to, is people to look at you and think you're despicable. They, they look at you with disdain. And so people are going to look at this suffering, suffering servant this way. People are going to forsake this suffering servant. We know that when Jesus was taken to the cross, how many people were present around him? Maybe half a dozen. I mean, we know that Peter uh, denied that he even knew him. We know that Judas sold him out. You know, when Jesus was handing out food to people, thousands of people flocked to him. When Jesus was healing the sick, they, couldn't, they had to bust the doors down and tear open the roof to get to Jesus. When Jesus was uh, doing miracles, he couldn't even enjoy a meal with his family without people trying to get to him. But when Jesus was crucified, you could have fit everybody in one sedan. He could have put everybody in one car. He was forsaken. When it got tough, 
In fact, when Jesus taught this difficult teaching that if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, referring to communion, so many people left him that he actually said to the disciples, are you gonna leave too? Jesus was forsaken. This suffering servant, it says, is going to be familiar with both grief and sorrow. We read in the book of Hebrews that our high priest, Jesus, is familiar with all of the temptation and the suffering, and he is able to sympathize with us because of this. This suffering servant is going to know what grief feels like. He's going to know what loss feels like. You know, we don't hear anything about Jesus' earthly father after the birth narrative. Chances are Jesus' dad died when Jesus was between 12 and 30. Jesus knew what it was like to lose family members. Jesus loved Lazarus, and Lazarus died, and Jesus wept alongside of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Jesus cried. I actually was watching a, um, a discussion between an atheist and a Christian this week, uh, and the atheist just, he was like, God wouldn't cry. What kind of God would cry? And I just thought, man, I, I know that Jesus cried. It says in John eleven thirty five 35 that Jesus wept. And I'm, all, I'm like, what kind of God wouldn't cry? Would you want to follow a God that is so hard-hearted and can't relate? That's, that's part of the beauty of Jesus' incarnation, becoming a human being, is that because of that, he's acquainted with grief and familiar with sorrow. And he experiences what we experience. In fact, I would say he experiences it more than we experience it because he didn't do anything to contribute to it. A lot of our wounds, a lot of our griefs are self-inflicted. None of Jesus' were. So this suffering servant is going to be familiar with grief and sorrow. It says that he is not esteemed, which is he is not considered important. He doesn't even count. He's left out, not esteemed, no importance, no significance is given to him. And so this suffering servant is not going to live an easy life. In verses four and six, it says that this suffering servant is going to trade places with us. Surely, our griefs he himself bore. Whose griefs? Our grief. He bore our grief. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Smitten of God does not mean smitten the way that like two junior hires are smitten with one another. It's referring to the word smite. If, you're, if you know the word smite, it's like you expect God to smite an evildoer, right? To, to send a lightning bolt from heaven and smite a person. This suffering servant is going to be smited by God for us on our behalf and afflicted. He was pierced through for what reason? For our transgressions. He is pierced because of our transgressions. He is crushed why? For our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being, meaning that the, 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 the disciplinary action, the, the whooping, the beating that we deserved, he took on him, and by his scourging, we are healed. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a trade, We're trading places with this suffering servant. That all of the sin and the rebellion and the uh, wickedness that we act out, 
that deserves punishment, and if God doesn't punish him, it means God's not just, it means God's not fair, that this suffering servant is gonna take that punishment. I mean, could God have said, you know what, I'm just gonna look the other way? If God had done that, we would say, God doesn't hate sin. I mean, who looks the other way, right? If you look the other way now at your job, you'll be fired. If you look the other way now in culture, you'll be ostracized. God cannot look the other way when it comes to sin. He has to punish sin or else he's unjust and he's unfair. So Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to allow God to be, or I'm going to demonstrate God's justice and mercy in taking the punishment that is rightful, but I'll take it so that you can survive or so that you can experience forgiveness and mercy. Does that make sense? Jesus provides the opportunity to be, for God to be both just and merciful at the same time. And of course, if Jesus is God, then that means God is taking it in on himself. So he trades places. And then verse six just says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Every single one of us has wandered away from God. In fact, I would say we are born wandering. We, we come out of the womb not pursuing God, not following God, and it takes an act of God where he steps in and intervenes on us. It's not our idea, it's his idea to change us so that we stop wandering and start like uh, obedient sheep following him. Now, he takes our griefs and sorrows, he suffers for our transgressions and sins, and what do we get? Healing. That's the trade. I can't think of a more obvious trade to take, right? So he'll take all the punishment, all the eternal punishment, all the wrath of God, he'll take all of that and exchange, we get healing, forgiveness, salvation. This seems so obvious to me. I don't understand why so many people reject it except that they don't think they need it. They don't think that they have wandered like a sheep. They don't think that they have transgressions. They don't think that they have iniquities. They don't think that they have sin. And so why would I trade anything? I'm good. I'm a good person. Verse six answers that I'm a good person by saying all of us like sheep have gone astray. You might be a good person compared to someone else, but you're not a good person compared to Jesus. You are not better than Jesus. If you, think you, if you could save yourself and there was no need of Jesus, that kind of makes God look really bad, doesn't it? That he, would, that he would sacrifice his own son even though there was another way. The only reason God went to that length is because there was no other way. So this is the trade. Now verses seven and nine tell us that the suffering servant will suffer oppression in silence. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. And then in verse nine it says again, because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This was telling us that this suffering servant is going to suffer, he's going to be oppressed, which means his suffering is not going to be fair. It's gonna be unjust. He didn't deserve it, he didn't earn it, he didn't bring it upon himself. He's gonna be oppressed and he's going to do that in silence. Now, hold on, I wanna explain this. You might look at Jesus and say, but didn't Jesus 
speak at least seven times on the cross. Don't, every, every Good Friday, don't we look at the seven statements of Jesus on the cross? Yeah, Jesus spoke on the cross when he was already on the cross, by the time he was already on it, and nothing Jesus said was in his own defense. When it says silent here, it doesn't mean he doesn't make a sound. It doesn't mean he doesn't utter a syllable. It's saying this suffering servant is not going to defend himself. He's not going to excuse himself. He's not going to try to escape his fate. Yes, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Yes, Jesus handed off the care of his mother Mary to uh, John the, the disciple. Yes, Jesus asked for a drink. But at no point did Jesus say, this isn't my fault. Don't make me go through this. Because what would have happened if Jesus had tried to defend himself or escape the cross? What would be happen? You and I wouldn't have an opportunity for salvation. Jesus could have saved himself if he'd have defended himself. But he chose instead to remain silent because he wanted to save us. His silence actually accomplishes our salvation. So silence doesn't mean that he never spoke. It just means that he didn't defend himself or try to get himself out of the situation. If he had done that, it would have prevented him from taking our punishment. Now, verse uh, 7 says that like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. I kind of feel like that verse right there is a unique, like God wants us to focus on that for a moment this morning. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. So not all sheep are silent before their shearers. In fact, the first time that a sheep is shorn, this is going to be a tongue twister. You guys know sheep produce wool, and so they have to be basically get, get a buzz cut uh, every now and then, and then they take that wool. Well, and they use clippers, almost like the clippers you would use to give yourself a haircut for those of you that give yourselves haircuts. So uh, the first time a sheep gets shorn, it's not silent. It makes those really annoying sheep sounds that you may have seen on YouTube where they scream and it sounds like a person being murdered. They scream, they wiggle, they try to escape. But after the second, third, fourth, fifth time that they've been shorn and they they recognize the touch of the sheep shearer and they understand what's going on and they know that, hey, at the end of this, I'm going to feel better actually. The reason that older sheep stay silent is because they know what's going on. The suffering servant, Jesus, as he's going through the cross, is able to keep silent because he knows exactly what God is doing. This is not a mystery to Jesus. I know because I have kids that they can't, they can't go through anything hard with their mouth shut if they don't understand it. I don't understand why we're going in the car. I don't understand why I have to eat this. I don't understand why I have to go to bed. If they don't understand, you know how I know they don't understand? Because their mouth opens. But when you go through a difficult thing and you know why you're going through it, you know what God is doing, it's a lot easier to maintain your appearance of wisdom as you go through it. It's a lot easier to not complain, not try to escape it, not try to get out of it if you know why you're going through it. Jesus knew why he was going through the suffering that he went through. He knew why he was on the cross. He knew why he was beaten. He knew why he was uh, 
arrested, and because he knew it, he was able to go through it with dignity. You and I go through stuff all the time, and we, sometimes we don't know why we go through it, and we make sure that everyone knows that we don't know why we go through it. But if we could just get a sense of what God is doing in the process, it allows us to trust him the way that a sheep that's being shorn trusts the one that's shearing him. Uh, and that helps us. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be totally silent every time we go through something difficult. I'm not saying that everyone who is oppressed needs to be silent. I'm saying that Jesus was silent when he was oppressed. Now, there's a huge tradition in the prophets of the Bible that the prophets and prophetic people are supposed to speak up on behalf of people who are being oppressed. So I'm not saying suffer oppression in silence. Uh, I'm saying that Jesus uniquely fulfilled that. He knew that he, what he was doing was redemptive. So when we go through difficult moments, I think one of the first questions we should ask is, okay, God, what are you doing right now? Is this a, a pruning thing that you're doing? I mean, are you making me more like you? Or is this a moment where I do need to speak up? Uh, what's going on here? Jesus knew as he was suffered that this was a moment he did not, he should not escape from, he should not get out of. So uh, Jesus remained silent in that he did not defend himself. It doesn't mean he didn't speak, it just means that he didn't try to escape it. He knew what was happening. Verses 10 and 12 tell us that Jesus or the suffering servant will be a willing substitute for sinners. So verses 10 and 12 say, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11 uh, continues, he will justify the many as he will bear the iniquities. And verse 12 says, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus was willing, or the suffering servant would be, would be willing to be a substitute for sinners. He's a guilt offering who removes the guilt of sin for many. And while he suffered for sinners, he prayed for them as well. And we know that Jesus was crucified in between two thieves, and he prayed for the people that were crucifying. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So he intercedes for the transgressors. Now, in this passage... We are the sheep that have gone astray, according to verse 6, but the Messiah is the lamb that is slaughtered. The only sheep that never strayed is the one that got slaughtered on behalf of the sheep that did stray, us. And so this is a huge example of Jesus as our actual substitute who is making atonement for us. What does atonement mean? Atonement comes from, it's actually not a Hebrew word, it's not a Greek word, it's an English word, and it's at-one-ment is where the word atonement comes from. It's we are made at one with God through Jesus' sacrifice. We were not at one with God, we were separated from God, we were in an argument with God, now we are at one or atoned with God because of Jesus, and Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement that's able to reconcile us to God. And the New Testament makes this clear. This uh, prophecy in Isaiah is referenced multiple times in the New Testament. I'm not gonna read from the Gospel of Matthew, but let me just paraphrase. 
The Gospel of Matthew is the Jewish gospel. It was written to the Jewish people, and so it's got the most little Jewish nuggets in it of any gospel. And Matthew quotes Old Testament prophecies, and he's just making sure that if a Jewish person read his gospel, they would get it, who Jesus was. Jesus heals a woman in Matthew chapter 8. It's actually Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals a woman in Matthew 8, and Matthew quotes this prophecy from Isaiah 53, and as it relates to physical divine healing, Jesus applies Isaiah 53 and says, he himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases, which means that the way Matthew understood healing was God doesn't heal because he can do anything. God doesn't heal because sometimes he's in a good mood. God heals because Jesus paid for our illness. Jesus took physical, a physical beating so that we could experience healing. So our healing is rooted not in God's good mood, but our healing is rooted in the atonement or the sacrifice of Jesus, which is like that happened in history, that doesn't change. It's this stable event that took place. In Matthew chapter 26 and 27, as we look at the trials of Jesus and where he's arrested, he's silent. I mean, aside from a few words where he says, you yourself have said it, or you will see the Son of Man. But at no point does he try to escape or get himself out of that situation. And we read in Matthew 27 that he's crucified between two thieves and prays for those that uh, are crucifying him. In the, in the Gospel of John, John is not a very Jewishy gospel. John is the apostle that was potentially the closest to Jesus relationally, meaning like maybe best friends. Uh, John probably would say that Jesus was his best friend. I'm not sure Jesus would say that John was his best friend, one of those relationships uh, where, you know, you think you're a person's best friend and they're like, well, you know, I'll be your best friend, but you're not my best friend. No one knows what that's like? Okay, me neither. So... <laughs> In John chapter one, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Uh, it's John the Baptist speaking, but the apostle John is writing it down. Jesus is referred to as the lamb. Well, what is, Jesus, what is the suffering servant referred to? A lamb. In the gospel of John, he observes that people did not believe the miracles of Jesus. This is in John chapter 12, verse 38. Not everyone believed the miracles of Jesus. They thought maybe he's a demon, maybe he's making this stuff up, maybe we can do this stuff, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 1. In Revelation chapter 5, we looked at this a few weeks ago, the apostle John reports that he sees a lamb who was slain who receives the title deed to the earth. And so this lamb of Isaiah 53 is also the lamb of the book of John and the lamb of the book of Revelation. And then finally, Peter, and this one we will read. Peter, one of the disciples, very close to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were probably the three closest disciples to Jesus. So Peter, very close to Jesus. Peter's the one that Jesus says, you're the rock, and on, these, uh, on, on this uh, proclamation of my deity. I'm going to build the church and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. In 1 Peter 2 verses 21 through 25, Peter gives the most exhaustive uh, treatment of this passage in the New Testament and I'm going to find it in just a second. Yeah, 1 Peter 2 21 through 25. Let me read this. It should be on the screen. 
For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Verse uh, 21 says that Christ is our example. So I want to make this really, really super duper clear. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. You're going to hear people that will try to tell you, these will be people who are preaching, these people who, in my opinion, don't understand the Bible, who are going to tell you that Jesus is not our sacrifice, he's our example. You know, oh, what a, what a primal, primitive God would need someone to suffer and blood to be shed on our behalf. No, no, no. Jesus is not our substitute. He's our example. And they'll point to this verse where it says Jesus is our example. And that's fine because Jesus is our example, but he can be both. He can be both our substitute and our example. Does that make sense? This is not some mutually exclusive thing. Anyone, if you hear, I just want to put this like in your head and put this on your radar. If you hear preaching and you hear teaching where people begin to question or doubt or undermine that Jesus was the actual substitute that you needed in order to be reconciled to God, you need to like turn that off or start thinking about that very critically and trying to find what they're saying. Because there is a this stream in the church of people who are, who are focusing on the, the example aspect, which is good, the example thing is there, but they're denying the substitutionary atonement aspect. The Bible teaches both, not one or the other. And so we wanna understand both. So Jesus is our example. He is also our substitute. He suffered for us, verse 21 says. 20, verse, verse 22 quotes Isaiah 53, saying that he committed no sin, he suffered without defending himself, he bore our sins, and we're healed by his wounds. And verse 25 reminds us, we were continually straying like sheep, but what's our, what's our present state? We're no longer straying like sheep. We've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. So this addresses Isaiah 53 significantly. Now, again, Isaiah 53 is written to these Jewish people who are living in this high state of uncertainty, anxiety. Maybe these people, this nation of Babylon is gonna come in and sweep them up. They're afraid for their houses. They're afraid for their families. They're afraid for their lives. And they want a savior that's gonna come and fix their immediate circumstances. And what does God provide them? A savior who's gonna do more than just address their immediate circumstances. He will address their immediate circumstances but he's also going to address the bigger issue of their eternal salvation. And we're in a similar situation where there's a high level of uncertainty. Will, will we return to normal? Is our health intact? Will we have jobs? Will we, we be able to pay rent? Will we be able to uh, 
do these things that we used to enjoy doing. And I think that Jesus wants to not only address the immediate physical needs, but address the bigger picture eternal need. Uh, Jesus always over-delivers. You ask Jesus for help and he just like over-delivers on what he can provide for you. So they wanted someone who was gonna come save them from another nation. God provided someone that was gonna save them from eternal damnation. We want a vaccine, but God provides for us a savior who does miraculous healing, who provides for our finances, who saves us from sin. Does that make sense? Like he's over delivering on what we need. Vaccines are great. You're still gonna die someday. I don't know if, you know, sorry to break it to you, and Santa Claus isn't real. Like these are realities that we have to live with. Sorry, James, I don't know if you knew that. So, uh, you know, like all of these immediate needs, they're real. And Jesus meets these real and immediate needs, but he meets the bigger, eternal, existential needs that we have of salvation. So we're reminded of that as we take communion. In communion, we actually are very specifically focusing on the death and suffering of Jesus. And on your way in, you should have gotten our uh, communion cups that we've been using during this time. If you want to get those out and begin to open, begin the slow and tedious process of opening those up. So here is what communion means according to the New Testament. This wafer, we call this the bread, represents Jesus' body that was broken, and we, when we say broken, we mean beaten, bloodied, tortured. This is Jesus' body, which is broken for us, and this cup, which is full of grape juice, represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for us. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with the disciples and drank wine and ate bread with them to foreshadow his death, and what his, his death accomplished. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, Glenn, if you'd like to come up, in 1 Corinthians 11, that when we take communion, we should examine ourselves, and we should ask Jesus to show us uh, where there is sin present in our lives so that when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it correctly, we take it rightly. So, Glenn, if you want to come up and join me on stage, uh, Glenn is one of our elders. Glenn is going to read our, or lead us in reading our communion declaration from 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm gonna ask you to read this with him and then he's gonna pray for us and we'll take communion. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.